my bigger challenge now is everybody wants to talk to the person who started the company. And that's a real challenge because how, how, how many phone calls can you have? And I've seen clients not love the fact that they speak to you in a sales call and then have nothing to do with you after the fact. So now it's a matter of, you know, how to navigate that piece. So I think there's a lot of scaling challenges when you build the business around your own personal skill sets. Melissa Facina kicked off her career at age 11 by joining the family business and falling in love with the food and beverage industry. Fast forward to 2020, she is the founder of not one, but two businesses, City Ops, an outsourced operations firm that offers support and execution to emerging food and beverage businesses, and her latest venture, City Capital, which invests in some of today's most exciting brands. Tune in to hear Melissa tell the story of how a combination of innate negotiating skills and being gutsy has helped her scale her businesses and navigate this past year's challenges with resilience. She also shares why 2020 might actually be the best year to launch a business. Coming up, you'll hear Melissa's early days of growing up in her family's food and beverage business. How wanting to become a leader meant starting her own company. How to define and address the parts of you that need work. How Melissa raised millions during the COVID-19 pandemic. Why being a strong negotiator is critical when starting a business. The reason why Melissa will find 15 minutes for a conversation with anyone in business. The value of bringing on an executive coach to train your team and yourself and how Melissa winds down and unplugs from running two businesses. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Melissa, I am so excited to finally have this conversation. This has been, I feel like years in the making. When did we have this initial conversation about you coming on the podcast? (laughs) Definitely true. When the initial chat was, I don't know, but we've certainly known each other for a handful of years now at this point, it seems. Yeah. So we met through a client, a mutual client of ours that we worked on at Socialfly several years ago. And we were just so fascinated with the incredible success you have had running your business and are so excited to have this conversation with you today. So thank you so much for being here. Awesome. Thanks for having me. All right. So you are the founder of multiple businesses. When we first met, I think you were just running one business, correct? All by myself. All right. So give us a little background of what you're working on, what you've been up to over the past couple of years. For sure. So multiple, I think, is an understatement. But most notably, I founded an outsourced operations firm called City Ops that services the emerging food and beverage community. Grew up in pretty large-scale food and beverage manufacturing. Uh, Most of the orange juice in uh, North America comes from my family or their sources of supply. I got my first job at 11, like hand palletizing what was perceived to be very heavy orange juice containers and fell in love with food. And, you know, at 30, I realized that my dad had built a business that he wanted to continue leading, did it without 
investment and partners and his no partners philosophy extended to his children, which for me, like as a leader, didn't feel very good. I didn't want to be a follower. I think in addition to that, I cared a lot about what I ate and, and orange juice for me really isn't on the top of the nutrient dense list that I want to consume. So I left and uh, tripped into the emerging food and beverage scene in New York City and realized that operators were hard to come by and female operators at that were few and far between. So I launched a business that, that really took my core areas of focus growing up in, in food and beverage manufacturing and tried to fill it in for healthy brands that were growing about you know six or seven years ago. So, so that business has transformed pretty dramatically. It's now the premier outsourced operating partner to emerging CPG. So we run the back end of about 30 to 32 companies right now. You know, the revenues of those businesses that we manage are zero dollar venture back to about a hundred million. Obviously, you know, roles that we play are very different as those revenue markers increase. And then if that wasn't busy enough, I decided to launch a venture capital firm right in the middle of COVID, which we can talk about later. But but that's a fifty-five million dollar fund one that supports the same types of businesses that that we represent on the upside. How were you able to find your first clients? Well, my first client was our shared client and a big part of the reason why still today I answer his phone calls and do anything possible for him. I picked up the phone and had, had, you know, I was spinning around for about a year after leaving a family business and trying to figure out where I was going to plant myself and happened to have gotten like, I went through like some IT sales job, which was really ridiculous since I don't understand anything about IT. (laughs) (laughs) And then a food and beverage recruitment firm was working on teaching their recruiters what operations jobs meant. And so I had met him in that process. And six months later, I had left that business. Actually, they fired me and offered me money for six months to go start my own company because it was clear as day to them. I was a better potential business owner than employee. But I called them and said, hey, I'm going out on my own. You know, I remember talking to you. I think my skill sets fit really nicely with the kind of business that you were growing. He was very small at the time. And he said, sure, what are you charging? And I can't remember what number I came out with, but he ended up negotiating me down to like one third of that price. (laughs) Sounds like him. (laughs) (laughs) And was like, I promise you, Melissa, if you come in here and do a good job, like I'll not only meet what you asked for, but I'll pay you more than that. And he actually wasn't kidding. I ended up getting like 150% more than what I initially asked him for. And because of him, most of that money went in the bank. And honestly, that's what allowed me to hire, you know, some first teammates for me. So I think a lot of people when they first start their business are willing to negotiate their fees just to get those first clients and get their feet wet. You had a good experience with that. But looking back, would you do the same thing again? So we still negotiate fees, by the way, and I don't know that that's going anywhere as a service-based business. I actually think it's probably getting worse, particularly in this time. You know, look, I think when you don't have any credibility and, you know, no concrete success track record, I mean, my background and growing up in the space, I think helped a lot and gave credibility where honestly, I, I may not have actually deserved to have it, but that's a part I would, I would share anybody should do, which is trying to find somewhere to root credibility in so that you can gain 
worth, I think, in an area that you're trying to sell. And in terms of negotiating fees, yeah, look, I think someone has to give you your first shot, right? Everybody needs a first shot from somewhere at some point in time. And quite frankly, opening new avenues of business for us inside City, or even having negotiated my deal on a partnership level in City Capital required people to still be opening doors for me. And it comes with, you know, a need to negotiate a stance in some way, shape or form. So yeah, I I think that like being a good negotiator at any level is really critical to not only starting a business, but running one and fees are just a portion of that. You start a business that was really centered around you and providing consulting services. How do you scale that? Because essentially you'd have to replicate yourself. So what's that? What was the first step in, in scaling? Yeah. Well, when I figured out, I'll let you know. One. (laughs) Two, I think what I realized was I was only a small piece of what needed to drive success. I'm really good at some things. And the few things that those are, are still the things that I do for the business, right? I can negotiate contracts better than anybody, right? We're talking about negotiating. That's why I care about that. I can see operational strategies or manufacturing strategies better than a lot of folks. But if a client of ours called and said, oh my gosh, we got product stuck at a port and needs you to, you know, we need to call a truck and move it from here to here. I'm like, I don't even understand who to call for that. And so I think it was honestly uh, understanding what my material gaps were, being willing to recognize what those gaps were, not being ego filled in being afraid to go and fill those gaps. And then understanding that the that the market wanted some of those gaps filled. And so honestly, my first step in that was, um, what gaps do I think most clients need that I absolutely do not have? And who do I know that has them? And my first step was, was hiring uh, someone who was actually my client. She was a VP of operations for a client of mine, went on maternity leave, was so ready to go, felt like she had maybe been mistreated by by some of the teammates that she had worked with previously. And was like, I want to come work with you. I'm ready to go. I'm like, great, I can't pay you. And so then we're back in negotiation mode, right? And I ended up giving up like half of what I was taking out of the business to bring her in. And and it, it was great. It opened up a whole new line of business that I couldn't sell. My bigger challenge now, and we've we, we've pursued that approach, by the way, in terms of scaling, which is finding the gaps and hiring people who have that talent, is everybody wants to talk to the person who started the company. And that's a real challenge because how how, how many phone calls can you have? And I've seen clients not love the fact that they speak to you in a sales call and then have nothing to do with you after the fact. So now it's a matter of, you know, how to navigate that piece. So I think there's a lot of scaling challenges when you build a business around your own personal skill sets. How have you learned to be a great negotiator? And are there any tips you can share? Well, I think part of it's innate. Honestly, I feel like I came out of the womb maybe negotiating and cutting deals. The other part is I, I was around that kind of conversation for a lot of my life. My dad's a businessman, and you know I think that's some of the best kind of interaction or engagement I've gotten from him. Beyond that, I realized that much of what I wanted in life, particularly being a female, would require me to have good communication skills and sell capabilities very early on. If I wasn't able to do that and get my point across quickly, and I got the door shut on me a whole bunch of times, then 
I, frankly, I, I probably wasn't going to be able to get as far as I needed to. So I think part of it is innate, you know, ability. The second is just being gutsy. I mean, I, I, I try very hard not to be afraid of failure and like, I'll be very ballsy up front for lack of a better term, but then like behind the door will like cry and be like, oh my God, I can't believe it. That was so terrible. But it's really just a matter of the conversation that you put down up front. Um, and the third is investing in myself. I spent a lot of time investing in the right type of third party supports and partnerships and mentorships trying to get better in those particular skill sets. Can you share a little bit about how you've invested in yourself and what those third party partnerships are and were? Yeah, I, you know, it's a funny thing. I I kept hearing from successful people that like one of the best things that you can do or put money in is in yourself. And I'm like, I don't have money to put in myself. What are these people talking about? Like they want me to spend $3,000 on a course. Where am I getting $3,000 from? And you know, it doesn't come out of nowhere. I didn't just, you know, invest in myself starting with a $3,000 course. I think the first steps are, I really believe that you're a culmination of the five people or eight people or 10 people that you surround yourself with. And so I, I think I sold myself into a circle of capable professionals before I was one and really tried to pick up you know, some of the character traits and, and, you know, it's true. I think successful people may not all do it the same, but there's a fair amount of characteristics that are shared and they're not all for me, at least innate, like I'm a procrastinator by a million years and that doesn't, that doesn't lend itself to being very successful. And so that's a skill set that needs to be worked on, but I think it transitions. It goes from picking the right people to surround yourself with to picking some right mentor partners And then defining, you know, again, back to being able to look in the mirror and defining without a lot of ego, what your gaps are. And so like even today I have, I've gotten an executive coach, you know, I spend a fair amount of money every month having an executive coach, not just for me, but the executives on my team. Why? Because I'm sort of against the let's build the CEO model and not build the rest of the company. And so I think you've got to build them together, but, but you know, I hope in the future I have more things, honestly, that I have the ability to invest in. I think it's about what you need at the time and, and being willing to put in that time, effort, and or money. When did you start with the executive coach? And did you start with that person first just for you and then rolled it out to your team? No, I went searching for an executive coach for all four of us. Okay. By the way, was a hard sell to any executive coach, which I was not expecting. And I would say that was about a year ago, which was about a year too late. And so I went, why, if I, if I try and be the moderator in your seat, why would I go and get an executive coach at that point? It's because I could see, uh, and we can talk about this at some point, but I could see that my desires and where I wanted to go in my life didn't fit the business model that I had built. And so that means I needed to get my own self out of my own business and go somewhere else. And that's difficult. I also saw that the level of support that the executive team underneath of me needed, you know, should, should have come in to be supported from an outside third party perspective. And I couldn't offer that. And so why it's a challenge, I think, to get everybody together from, from an executive coach perspective is most executive coaches are designed around one individual and what your individual needs are in that moment. 
I complicated it by saying I have individual needs and, and they need help moving into their other roles. And there are three of them. And so you're going to have three different conversations plus me. It's worked out very well, but I had to find the right person, frankly, who was willing to navigate that. That's so interesting. How did you go about finding that coach? Actually, I found them on LinkedIn. I was doing a lot of interviewing of executive coaches in either independently or like folks who had, you know, groups of executive coaches. And I couldn't match some of the financial requests that they had for four people, which I just thought were absolutely absurd. And so, you know, it had to, I'm a big kind of gut feel person. I'll make a lot of business decisions solely on gut, which may or may not be the best thing, I guess. But I have to feel really good, I think, about the pathway that this individual is on. So I went through probably 12 interviews of folks and this is not the right person for a variety of reasons. And there was a gentleman who was in executive coaching, used LinkedIn as a platform to share videos about himself, how he thinks about things, you know, what thought processes are during different uh, places of maybe trial in people's lives. And I, frankly, the video aspect of it was like, damn, this is great. I can see exactly how you're thinking through stuff. I can align with that. I already know I want to talk to you. And so for his sales pitch, he's, he, he did a great job. We actually do something very similar at Social Fly. So we have many coaches actually, and we find coaches based on what our management team needs to learn. I love, I love that you do that too, and that it's working for you. For sure. How's it working for you? I think it's working really great. And I think something that I can relate to that you said is, you know, you're not most people, <laughs> there are pro- probably uh, people who are good at everything, but most people are not good at everything and you have your specific strengths. And, and for me, and I'll just speak for myself, you know, I, I don't know everything. I'm learning. We've done this. This is the first time we've ever done any of this and we're still doing new things every day for the first time. So to be able to delegate the coaching has been so crucial because I need people to learn and be great at the things that I don't have time to be great. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Coming up, you'll hear how Melissa knew it was time to launch City Capital and what makes her want to invest in a business. Now that we are recording our podcast remotely and not in our studio, we have mailed you a special surprise that we would love for you to open right now. Okay. Anybody knew what it took to get this box here? (laughs) Oh, I'm cutting. I'm now pulling. Okay, hold on, I'm flipping. Shall I open the card first? Always open the card first, I thought so. I thought so, but I didn't know if we wanted to board. Fast roll of presents. Shall I read it? Yes. If you can read my handwriting. (laughs) We're so excited to finally record your episode of the podcast with you. I know our listeners are going to be so inspired by your story. Thank you for all you do to help inspire female leaders. Love, Stephanie and Courtney. Yay! And do you see a little, there's something attached to the card there. Aha! You've You're been a pinned. You're an official entrepreneur now. <laughs> Hold on. Stick it on here. Okay. Woohoo. I should have put it higher. <laughs> this is really cute that you guys do this. Well, it's something that's important for brands, right? Surprising and delighting your 
guests, your customers. <laughs> meeting cards. This is great. We can talk about having a virtual team in a second. Yes, yes. Well, I would love to know how you decided it was time for you to start your new venture. Yeah, that was a process in the making. You know, being in the position in service-based business in food and beverage, I think people are starting to see tons of natural products pop up on their shelves all over the place. They're likely seeing conversations about large conglomerates making acquisitions. And there's a lot of capital being poured in the industry. And so that left me in a position of being invited to a lot of deals and a lot of opportunities to support a lot of amazing founders' businesses at various stages. And frankly, I hadn't made it yet. I still haven't made it, by the way. But you know, I wasn't going to be writing the million-dollar or multi-million-dollar check from my own bank account. And so there were a lot of opportunities that I was saying goodbye to for lack of having capital. And so I was considering being part of a venture capital firm for a while. Had somebody asked me five or seven years ago what I wanted to be when I would have grown up, my answer would have been an operating partner to a venture capital fund. So for different reasons then than today, but what I learned in these years was I didn't need to be someone else's operating partner. Uh, That was really the valuable lesson was I got to build my own and be the general partner of the firm and, you know, kind of build my own mission. And so it was just the right time. The, The industry had called for it. There's not enough female investors and the opportunity in the deal flow was massive. And how do you decide what to invest in? Well, we're spoiled from the op side because we basically see everything. We see how difficult certain things are. We see how quickly certain things propel. We understand specific characteristics of founders that are going to be successful versus ones that may not and can't get out of their own way. And so the data that we've been able to drive from the hundreds of businesses we've supported on the city op side has given me, cheat, I guess, a cheat sheet to what the market cares about and success. And so that's the main route on on what I care about. It's got to be delicious. It has, has to be scalable, meaning you have to be able to make it. And the people in charge have to be able uh, to push the business forward. What are some of the characteristics of the entrepreneurs that make for the best entrepreneurs that you invest in? Passion, I think, is probably one everyone talks about. Decisiveness might not be one we talk about enough when I see what people invest in, but indecisiveness kills a business Mm -hmm. 100% of the time. And so, you know, I don't care if it's the right decision. I just care that it's a decision and that the business moves forward and you can then kind of untangle, no decision's a perfect decision. So moving forward is ultimately going to grant you uh, opportunities to change. I think it's a lack of ego. I know I've mentioned that multiple times now, but it's so critical, I think, to being a good leader and to understanding what you need to surround yourself with. And none of that comes with ego. And honestly, moldability. If you're an entrepreneur that we either have to invest in or support on the services side, and you're not moldable and pliable, not that you should listen to absolutely everything everyone says, but if there's, if there's no ability for you to want to listen to the experts at the table, you shouldn't have them there. And I certainly shouldn't be there because we can't help you if you can't listen. 
What are the questions you ask these entrepreneurs to figure this information out? And how much time do you spend with them before deciding on an investment? Yeah, that's a dangerous question because investments come from so many different angles. We, again, cheat in some regards because about a third of our businesses that we invest in come through the services side. So we're already inside the company. We know everything about it. We see all its negatives, all its positives, how the person operates, what decisions they make. And honestly, while that seems like a very long cycle, the decision then to invest is a very short one because we have diligenced it in ways that no one else can. There's a second bucket, which is really capable co-investing partners and venture capital funds have diligenced it to you know extreme degrees. And we're now the ones diligencing it from a scalability perspective. And so we're looking at it from a different angle. And so if they've diligenced it in all these buckets and we only need one left, now that makes it an easier decision. And the third is, is you know, really in-depth conversations with, with these founders. And it depends on what level the business is in. I mean, our VC supports, you know, basically pre-revenue businesses to some that are doing a couple hundred million a year. So it's a huge range of capability. And, and honestly, the smaller the revenue, the closer the founder is, right? So, mm-hmm. so you spend more time, I think, getting to know them when the revenue markers are smaller. So I've got a good team. And so between me, I think, and you know the teammates we have, we spend a fair amount of time in various pieces of the business. And only part of it is you know, entrepreneur characteristics. A lot of it's analytical. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So Courtney and I also decided to launch new ventures during COVID and you launched this new fund during COVID and raised, did I hear $55 million in 19 days? Is that the right? Wait, 19 days, 17 days, a very short amount of time. How did you do this? It's true. I cheated. You robbed a bank. (laughs) (laughs) I picked my partner really carefully. We went in a very non-traditional approach. So I say I cheated lightly, but it's actually sort of true. I partnered with a family office and a family office that had leaned into me for about a year and a half prior to pick their investments with them. And so when I was considering joining someone else's firm, they basically said, yeah, I don't think so. We're actually going to give you the platform to launch your own firm. And, you know, one better than that, we'll take all the investments that we have in the space and we'll put them into the fund. And so that was 20 million of the 55. And so when you've got people like that who have come up behind you to say, I'm 100% invested in this and believe deeply in the capability here, it becomes very easy to then raise capital around that. So yeah, we brought in what ended up being about 35 million in additional capital in 19 days and and literally shut it down. I mean, it was oversubscribed and we probably could have raised substantially more than that. Are all of the companies that you invest in also your clients on the operations side? Definitely not. I feel pretty yucky about that. Uh, Honestly, I heard so often in the industry that like people would give them small checks and then force them to use their services. We don't write small checks. We write decent sized checks, but I still don't want to force you to use my services. So about a third of them do because they were with us before we actually wrote the check. I mean, this is fairly new, but, but I'm almost certain that another, you know, handful of them will lean in at some point in time, because once you have that operational expertise, That's Mm -hmm. why they take the investment from you. Mm -hmm. They absolutely want to have that kind of support. And then there's other ones who honestly don't need it. 
They're doing 50, 100, 200 million a year, have never heard of City, only need us as a financial partner, as a bigger piece of a pie. Um, and that's fine, you know, because we could be along for the financial ride or be along for the operating ride. And frankly, we're still getting to the same end, end goal. Can you share some of the companies you've invested in? Sure. There's a business that actually may sit well with this audience called Sakara. It's an all D2C kind of healthy meal delivery service. They're doing amazing. They're a new investment of ours, have a lot of celebrity partnerships. There's a business called Super Coffee in the news lately where uh, Jennifer Lopez and Alex Rodriguez uh, made investments alongside of us. So that's super exciting. We've got some beverage companies. There's one called Milk. It was really the original kind of nut milk company in the market uh, in Whole Foods. So we've got companies that literally are just about to launch that honestly we're solving the operational challenges for building the manufacturing lines and capacities and all this true operations work that nobody knows about yet, but hopefully they will. And then there's ones that are very mature. Hint Water is, a, is another super mature one. It's everywhere. Most people know it. We've supported that business on several occasions and, and you know, hope it sells someday. Yeah, we know all of those brands. So that's really, really exciting. How do you juggle, uh, and I know you're probably still trying to figure this out, managing your VC firm and, and also having your operations business? Do you calendar block? Do you, do you set any type of boundaries? How do you make it work? So when I decided to do this, this was pre-COVID right? It was a very different world. And so the services business and world was great. Investment world was great. And it made perfect sense for me to be like, I'm going to spend 90% of my time over here in VC land, 10% of my time over here in like rah-rah city land. And, you know, kind of from a strategy and finance perspective, um, and it all blew up on me in the sense that Uh, COVID happened, the firm, the service firm needed more support from me than what I had built into the plan. The VC world needed more support from me than what I built into the plan. And so it's, it's been, I think, a a probably week by week scenario where I have, first I'll say I have phenomenal team on both sides of the equation. How big is your team? The team on the city op side was 15 pre-COVID. Now we're down to 10, but have six roles that we're bringing back in in different ways. So it'll be 16 by the end of the year. In the VC world, it's actually very small because it started between the family office and me. It ended up being the father and son in the family office, me, my COO on the city op side, who is running city ops, so sort of doesn't count. And then we've got an associate. So super small, you know, so there's, let's say 20 shared, which to support 70 companies is not a lot. You know, I think I'm navigating it. I think I share my calendars. So both sides of the business can see when I'm available. Everybody has access to book me. So if they need to put me on a call with a client, they know clearly where there's an opening because we're fully remote of a team and we have people in every time zone. I think I probably take calls much later at night being an East coast person than I would if I was on the West coast. So, you know, I take calls at nine o'clock at night 
Why? Because some people need me to. But I think it's a matter of, of stabilization. And I don't know that any company at any period of time is stable forever. And so I think you need to assess where the support needs to be in the short term to get it stable and then move on. And so, and I have the full expectation experiencing this now with COVID that I'm going to have to have that kind of ebb and flow back and forth. And we talked about juggling two businesses, but you also have a family as well. How do you manage everything with, you know, running these businesses and taking time for yourself and spending time with your kids? And your three cute dogs. Interesting question. I have a wife, two children and three dogs came really with a, with a, like an Insta poor family. And what I mean by that is my wife had two great kids prior to me. And so when we got married, I inherited two kids, basically. So they're now 12 and 16 and dealing with remote learning, by the way. They are not going back to school, I don't think, anytime in the short term. And it's difficult. You know, we have two people in the household who are high-functioning business owners And I think our children benefit from that in one way. They see, you know, decisiveness and, you know, passion and pursuit of goals. And I'm sure they don't benefit from it in some other ways where, you know, when they want to be off of their schoolwork at four o'clock and be like, hey, mom, this is what we learned today. Like neither of your moms are available till seven o'clock to have a chat about it. And I think that that's a real scenario that like working moms navigate is how to be supportive. And certainly when you're schooling in the house, by the way, it, it compiles it because they're available to chat about things immediately. So I don't have any answer there. And, and I wish I did, but I think the answer is very similar to looking at both businesses, which is like, you really have to just maneuver to the place that needs the support at the time. Well, we have a solution for your remote learning. It's DigiCards for classrooms. So we'll be sending that to your kids. Awesome. (laughs) Up next, the importance of being decisive and figuring out how you want to invest in your own company. How have you navigated working remotely during this time? Or are you one of those that have still gone into your office and and snuck in and escaped? (laughs) Um, I'm actually one of those who never had an office and Ah. made a remote business from day one. Smart. A, I lived in the most expensive part of the country. B, there was talent all over the United States that I just didn't feel like had to move to New York City. Three, I didn't want to go into an office. And four, I, like the overhead made much more sense to me to, to spend on talent than it did on, you know, office space. So we built an, a business, you know, I mean, we were fortunate in the sense that we were already remote and supporting all remote companies that, that it wasn't so impactful for us. So we'll never change or go back. And I think honestly, uh, it's just been easier for us to recruit now because the world yeah. has gotten used to remote instead of us convincing people that it's like not so scary to do. So you are prepared for this situation. As much as one could be. (laughs) (laughs) What tools would you say are crucial to enable your team to function and work from home? Yeah. So I think those are things we work really hard to figure out all the time. And I think they change when you have new teammates. The dynamic changes and the needs change based on what somebody needs when they come in the organization. I think transparency is critical. It scheduling time for like connecting is critical. Can't all be all work all the time because then you don't get to know someone. I personally spend time with everyone 
because I take it as a core responsibility as a leader to know exactly what drives every single person on my team. And on top of that, align with what they want in an outcome, right? And the outcome may not be to stay at City for forever. And so I need, and that's fine. And so I need to help them get to where they want to go. And so I think pairing, you know, connectivity time with what drives you time with honest conversation about work product, tracking work product. And I think uh, to be honest with you, beyond that, having the rest of the world go remote has been easier because then people don't feel so, you know, weird or left out that they're working for a company from home and never leave their house. Those are definitely really good tips. Is there something you wish you knew when you first started your business that you know now that you could share? Yep. And I constantly remind myself of this every single day, which is there is no perfect and nobody's going to give you the answer. I sit and like constantly go over what would happen if I did this? What if it, you know, what's going to happen in the future if I do this? What if I spend all this cash and there's no client money that comes in later? Like there's so many things that you can drive yourself crazy with. And by the way, like I can lament on them today and next week and next month, and I'm still not going to have the answer. And so it's speed, it's being decisive. It is, you know, don't let perfection be the enemy of good and really just get rolling. And I know it's so easy to say, and you're fighting kind of fear and anxiety along the way. And the reason I call out the like, I have to tell myself that every day is I don't know that it gets easier uh, to face that. And sometimes, you know, the stakes get larger. And so you're playing with bigger stakes and, and still have to convince yourself to do that. Courtney and I were just talking about this. Like, does it ever get easier? Yeah, we no, were having this conversation so. at 8.30. Was that this morning? Yeah. I was at a Starbucks parking lot. I was like, Stephanie, I just want you to know, I don't think it gets easier. <laughs> I was like, I know that. I, I don't think it does. Things just are different and there's other problems and issues to figure out. <laughs> it's true. It's just different. Yep. Can you tell us about a time where you, I guess, made a mistake and what you did about it? Because I feel the same way you do. Making a decision is better than making no decision, even if it's the wrong decision. So tell us about a quote unquote wrong decision. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's hard to go back and look at it. I mean, I guess it's easy to go back and look at wrong decisions because they look so glaringly obvious, but in the time you're only dealt with the information that's right in front of you to make the decision. My biggest challenge, I guess is how we can answer the question is in trying to determine how to grow the business without raising capital and leveraging margin to do that. And so I think Decisions I'll make today, which are greater investment in the business, lower margin, are coming out of mistakes that I feel like I made before, which was fighting to keep a margin and being, I think, afraid is the right word to use, to invest in the business as deeply as the business might have needed. At the time, it was the right decision, maybe not to. Today, I think it was the wrong decision. And so now I'm trying to restructure what that looks like. And by the way, that takes a lot of motivation for me and only me. I can talk to my teammates about it all day long, but when it's not them putting their capital at risk, it's a very different conversation. And so uh, that's, I think, my biggest mistake. And it's not a mistake. It's just a constant challenge of how do you invest in your company? 
And investing comes in a slew of things. It comes in money. It comes in time. It comes in energy. It comes in passion. And, and it comes in the type of people you bring in. And so, you know, it's a constant navigation. Where do you find your talent from? You know, we've tried recruiters and I think still use them in part. I have found it. I, I have found that pitching my own business to people make it, makes it substantially better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes I don't have the time to like, you know, go on LinkedIn or have chats with everybody that I think I want to reach out to in a company that's doing a great job. And I'm like, wow, they did a great job from an operating perspective. Let's see if they want to come work here. So I would say, I think recruiters are a lead of that, but frankly, we spend a lot of time in personal time that me and or the leadership team put into, you know, into vetting and just connecting. And, and it's not always about like what's on a piece of paper. In fact, I mean, no one has to take this word, but like, I don't even read resumes because I don't really think they tell you anything other than where somebody is right now. And so, so LinkedIn's been a good resource though, frankly, if you're going to do it on your own. Yeah, I love love LinkedIn for recruiting. One of our recent hires came from just cold outreach saying, hey, are you looking for this role? So highly, highly recommend it. What are you most looking forward to in the balance of this crazy 2020 year? Yeah, what I'm not going to get, which is clarity. And so (laughs) I wish I could get that. And that would be amazing. You know, everybody, I think everyone's talking about wanting 2020 to be over. And I'm really trying not to look at it from that angle. I'm trying to say, what has 2020 forced me to look at in in places in my business that needs support and in places in my personal life that get exposed when you don't have, honestly, it's a gift. I was saying to my wife the other day, like, oh my gosh, our son sits with you and works every day. Like, I know he's annoying and I know he grabs your papers and turns on the fan and like shoves the dog in your face. Like, I get it, but he sits next to you every single day. Like, how cool is that? We were just talking about, you know, being parents and not being able to connect with our kids or having time. And now he's there, but it, it, it exposes cracks, right? And so you have to be willing to look at the cracks. So I think for me, what I'm looking forward to is solving the cracks that I have found. And, and 2020 has just been such a tough year that you can't run from them. So true. It's just finding, finding the good in this whole situation. And you've, you've definitely done that and figured a lot out. Is there a mantra or quote that you live by? Yeah, actually, I wrote it down because I didn't want to screw it up. It's funny. On my team site, everyone else has quotes. And it started because I asked for people's quotes. And somehow, when my team made our website, they left my quote off of it. So like, I'm the only one who cared about quotes. And I'm the only one whose quote's not there. Uh, But my (laughs) quote comes from Damon John. And it's success is never owned. It's rented and the rent is due every day. And that feels so true for me, because nothing's guaranteed right? We, we all may be building things today that are gone tomorrow. Look at these poor folks who, who've built restaurants. They don't exist anymore right now. And so I think it's a blessing to still have a business that is operating and is operating that's cash flow positive. Not everyone's in that position. And I think it's also odd to say like a good time to think about starting a business mm-hmm. um, because if you can build it to kind of navigate challenging times, navigating easy times becomes a lot, a, a lot better. But yeah, I, I show up every day like it was, you know, not guaranteed. Yeah, I say that to, to people all the time. Now is a good time to start a business because it's cheaper than ever before. You don't even have to leave your house. You just need a, 
a Gmail account, <laughs> set up meetings. <laughs> so true. You are very business savvy. How do you disconnect? I know for me personally, I have a very hard time turning this, these ambitions off. How do you do it? I think I suck at it. <laughs> <laughs> I spend almost all of my business dealings, and, and I recognize I'm fortunate and have built this into my life, but I walk all the time. I literally take every call on foot. I basically spend no time sitting down. There's reason for that. I've, I'm 37. I've had 30 surgeries. And so I have to keep moving or, or feel terribly uncomfortable. But what that's afforded me, honestly, is like time between a call to the next call. And I get to see the leaves on the trees or like smell freshness in the air, hear, hear the birds chirping. And I think some of that stuff is really helpful during the day to just take a minute and stop. I have recently also been been setting like a bedtime for myself. That's so ridiculous to say that at 37, but where I I I don't want to be doing anything after a certain time. Why? Because I now value getting sleep and see the value of that and the productivity that comes the next morning. But it's really hard and and certainly devices don't make it any easier. It's definitely so hard. I try the bedtime thing as well. And some nights I'm able to put my phone down and get to bed early. And other nights I stay up working and I pay for it the next day. So I completely agree. Sleep is just so, so important. Melissa, can you share, we have a lot of listeners who are starting businesses and many of them food businesses. Who are the right entrepreneurs to reach out to you for funding? What, what state does their business have to be in? What's the best way to contact you? Yeah. So first thing is I'll give like 15, 20, 30 minutes to anybody all the time. Why? Because we started the conversation with the chat that somebody opens a door somewhere for you. And uh, I still need doors open for me uh, in a variety of places. And so if I'm not opening doors for other people, shame on me. So if you like contact me, so that's the first thing I'm happy. I, I can't answer where everyone should go because everyone's circumstances are different, but we can certainly figure it out in a short period of time. And if there are ways to guide you to people who can be helpful, I'm happy to do that. There is an info at on our website. It's called info at cityops.com, S-I-D-D-H-I-O-P-S.com. Co. Actually, we just changed it, so don't do the dot com. Um, but <laughs> we um, learned that lesson, <laughs> <laughs> and I probably shouldn't be saying this out loud. But all of those infos still go to me, so if it goes there, uh, I'll get the message. And our last question for you: What does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? Yeah, look, I feel like I fought hard to start a business. And I hope that like my journey in starting businesses is only just beginning. And, you know, food is one pathway for me. And I think there are probably others, but female, I think partnership in starting businesses is so critical. I co-founded something called the Woman on Boards Project in the natural products industry. Why? Because we need more women together in helping to lead these companies. And so I think it's different advice, by the way, than, than you can get from your male, male counterparts and not that it's better. It's just different. It's dealing with different opportunities that you're facing that, that others may not. And so for me, it's really just about 
about partnership, organization, and being able to lean in to folks who may be experiencing things that you did before or have already experienced things that you're about to. Oh, I love that. And we are so grateful for your time being on this podcast today and sharing your story and your journey. And we can't wait to continue to follow all of the incredible things that you're doing, that the companies you've invested in are doing. So thank you so much for being here, Melissa. No, thank you. Where can everyone find you and follow you on social media? And then if you can mention your website one more time so everyone can go on and check it out. As I shared before, I still call Instagram Instacart on a variety of occasions. So I'm fairly certain someone has a city ops Instagram account, but it's not run by me. Uh, So someone on our team must be doing that. I'm heavy on LinkedIn. And beyond that, you can go either to cityops.co, which is S-I-D-D-H-I ops.co or citycapital.co. So same city. Uh, capital.com. Awesome. Melissa, thank you so much. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. You can connect with us at socialflyny.com and follow us on Instagram at entrepreneurs. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneurspodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.